Chapter 17 of The Cruise of the Falcon by E. F. Knight. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 17. Ducuman. April 3rd. Having enjoyed a day and a half's rest in the not very interesting capital of the province of the desert, we rode off at daybreak on the 3rd of April. We went through the town in our usual picturesque procession, with a baggage animal trotting on ahead, with kettle and asador swinging under his neck, rattling merry music, and the sack on his back, well full of sugar, mate, biscuit, and beef, a four-day's store, for as we were not following the regular route, we could not tell how far we might have to travel ere finding a place where we could revictual. We rode all day, first through the canalized sugar plantations in the neighborhood of the town, then across a wilderness of trees and flowers. The deadly choo-choo plant was plentiful at our feet. So, too, thick-growing white poppies and variegated tulips. We followed the river, generally about a mile from it, a dense jungle intervening. At midday, we halted to feed in a small pueblo, where a laguna provided us with tepid, muddy water, but there was not a mas to be got in this place in the way of provisions, as Manuel, after diligent inquiry, informed us, not even caña or gin. What a barbarous country! Far indeed from civilization must be the spot where firewater cannot be procured. Then we went on again across the plain, steaming and dank with its rich black loam. How different from the dry south! The atmosphere was that of a vapor bath. It was late autumn, and the rank vegetation was rotting all around us, unhealthy and leprous-looking. We understood now how it was that this country was famed for its pestilential choo-choo, being a prolific mother of fevers, while the pampas and the arid montes further south are quite healthy, where, as in the Sahara of Africa, hunger and thirst and old age are the only diseases known. It demonstrates how little the natives here know of their own country, to say that we found that the Chata, or ferry boat, fourteen leagues off, the people of Santiago had told us of and recommended, was not in existence and had not been so for nearly ten years. So, after riding all day, we found that we had to follow the bend of the river still further to the southwest out of our direction, in order to find some other paso. About an hour after dusk, we came upon a house by the river bank, standing alone in the wilderness. The whole family was sitting outside, mate drinking, a patriarchal-looking tribe. The head was a stalwart, hale old man, straight as an arrow in gaucho dress, shod with colt's feet and belted with many dollars, with a head that might have belonged to Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob. He had several sons around him. One, a youth of about fifty was married. He had married daughters and was already a grandfather. Thus our host was a great-grandfather, but, to our surprise, huddled up within the rancho was another very aged man, with long white hair and beard, and blind, with his palsied head wrapped up in a white cloth. This was our host's father, the venerable ancestor of all the little colony the great-great-grandfather of the little babe there at this handsome mother's breast. 
This old gentleman lived in a world of his own in a time about three-quarters of a century back, at least. He would talk to no one, ignored his descendants and all present things altogether, and was wont, so our host told us, to tie himself in a knot there in the corner and shiver and moan on day by day with eyes that, though blinded, had yet a far-off look, and mumble to himself all sorts of ancient memories. He would talk often of the king of Spain, whom he evidently considered still ruled half the new world, and of many events of long-past history that his grandsons had not even heard of. This was a handsome family, from the old conquistador, as we call the ancient, downwards. There was no taint to the Indian blood in them, and so the happy and peaceful life of this little community of five generations of men flows on its even way in this remote waste, with only the season of the marking of cattle and such-like rural excitements to vary its uneventful calm. For out here, even the outermost wave of the revolutions of the cities is unfelt, and those lawless bands of armed men that fatten on pronunciamenta, robbing men and violating women, do not extend their raids thus far. At night, the preparation for rest were made in a way that would surprise an English farmer. Although the night air was cool, almost cold, our host bid his sons bring out the beds. Three cadres were then arranged in a row outside the house, which, emptied of everyone, was locked up for the night. The patriarch turned into one cadre, the host and his wife into another, the damsels into the third, while the men, the children, and ourselves camped out alongside in our blankets. This curious habit of locking up the house and turning out for the night is common in these northern provinces. Even in chilly weather, the native prefers to sleep under the stars to within doors, lulled into slumber as we were tonight by the lowing of cattle, the hum of cicada, the cry of the wild beasts, and other manifold sounds of the forest and the wilderness, not to forget the snores of patriarchs, for the great-great-grandfather raised a nasal trumpeting this night that drowned that of all his five generations of descendants, his oxen, and the strangers within his gates put together. April 4th. When we had ridden but a few miles this day, we perceived that ahead of us, the monte, for leagues as far as the eye could see, was of a red color, like that of burnt bricks. Earth, tree, and bush had all assumed the same curious hue, the effect being something like that of early winter on some of the vegetation of northern Europe. We could not at first conjecture what the strange appearance signified. It was as if some pestilential blast had withered up all the life on the land. On approaching, we found this to be a vast multitude of locusts that were settled so thickly on everything that no twig or leaf or inch of bare earth was left visible. There was nothing to be seen anywhere under the sky but the mahogany-colored bodies of these fearful creatures. They covered all. They had nearly finished up this district. As we rode through them, they rose from under our feet in thousands, with a multitudinous crackling sound as of a huge bonfire. And then, when we had passed, settled down again, having revealed in their short flight the devastation they had wrought. Little but bare barkless stalks were left of tree and bush. Even the grass had been devoured down to the ground. 
After riding over several miles of locusts, we reached a hut by the river where were two men who made their livelihood by burning charcoal and ferrying stray passengers across the stream. For this purpose, they had constructed what they rather boldly called a boat. Imagine two rough logs about three or four feet long, lashed together with hide thongs in the shape of a V, then a plank nailed on top of these, so converting the V into an A. Here you have the boat. The apex of the A was, of course, the bow of the vessel. Only one passenger could be carried at a time on this rickety craft, and he had to balance himself gingerly as he squatted down on the transverse plank and held on to the two logs. One by one, we were ferried across. The Sharon would launch the boat each time with its nervous occupant looking exceedingly ridiculous, and then swim behind it, pushing it on with his hands, so steering it diagonally across the current, till ultimately he beached it on the opposite bank. The river was much swollen, very rapid, nearly 300 yards wide, and big trees kept floating down, often threatening to collide with the little raft, Thus, there was no small element of danger in this passage. No accident occurred, however. We were all safely landed, and then the men proceeded to swim our horses across. We had not ridden half a mile beyond this, when a strange sound was heard suddenly, coming from all around us, a sound low and ominous, terrible to the husbandmen. It was the noise of the wings of myriads of locusts. The word had been given forth by the captain, and, with one consent, in a moment the vast army rose up with the sun after their night's feed, as is their custom, to renew their journey of devastation. The light was obscured by the number of them, and the sky was reddened. We rode through several leagues of them, all bound in a contrary direction to ourselves, so we had to meet them in the face, a most unpleasant sensation. Our horses evidently had the strongest objection to riding against these dense living showers that pelted against us without intermission. We passed a rancho, by which was a small plot of maize. The family were all out, endeavoring to drive off the invaders with branches of trees and shouting, but in vain, for they crowded on over their dead and would not be repulsed or checked by any slaughter. So the poor people stood in despair and hung down their hands as they beheld the speedy ruin of their little farm. By midday, we reached a deserted rancho. In its ruined corral was a well from which we managed to draw out some rotten water, but we saw that there were so many dead and swollen snakes and other beasts in the well that we dared not drink, fearfully thirsty though we were, for the day was very hot. Neither could we find pasture for our horses. Between Santiago to Tucuman, the stages were long, and we were unable anywhere to procure algarroba or other hard food, so our animals had a very hard time of it. Rather late this night, very thirsty, we reached a farm that is called Chowurki. Here there was water and some pastures, so we rested by it for the night. We camped out under the carob tree in front of the house, together with a farmer, his family, some tame ostriches, and a little flock of goats. We returned his hospitality by doctoring a horse of his that had been frightfully clawed in the back by a puma. 
he told us that his place was in the province of Tucumán, so we must have crossed the frontier sometime this day. April 5th. This was our last day's ride and brought us to the city of Tucumán, which is about 50 miles distant from the farm of Chaworki. We saw ahead of us a range of giant mountains looming. These were the Andes of Tucumán and the Sierra of Aconquija, whose highest summit is 17,000 feet above the level of the Pacific Ocean. After riding some leagues, we reached an extensive swamp, of the perils of which we had heard some exaggerated accounts. We had been told that it might easily befall us to lose a horse or two while traversing it. We found it to consist of treacherous, soft black mud, in some places covered with water, in others with bright green grass, forming a quaking crust over the morass. Canes and other swamp-loving shrubs, six feet high and more, grew all over it, rendering progress slow and difficult. A nasty, unhealthy place, a nest of choo-choo, where only mosquitoes could resist the poisons of the malarious atmosphere, for under the hot sun, the black mud was rotting and fermenting and stinking, breathing forth pernicious fevers. Once beyond it, we reached Naranquita, a pueblo consisting of a store, a few ranchos, and a sugar factory with its lofty chimney. A sugar plantation surrounded the village and a grove of oranges. It was an unhealthy spot that should be left to the mosquitoes that infest it. Nearly everyone in the place seemed to be prostrated with a fever, more or less, and those who were not suffering then were sallow, emaciated, and haggard from old attacks of it. We rode on towards the big mountains until late in the afternoon, when we perceived signs that we were nearing an important city. In the first place, the foot track broadened into a road, and on either side of us were great plantations of sugar cane with deep canals and hedges of prickly pear dividing them one from the other. Large orange groves, too, were frequent. Above all towered huge sugar factories, by which were the mud ranchos of the peons grouped in little villages. By the roadside were canteens for the use of the men employed on the plantations presided over by Indian women. On reaching an eminence, we saw before us a long straight road, and at the end of it, a fair city with glittering domes and snowy white houses, backed by the distant Sierra, rising range behind range into the clouds. Between us and the town was a rapid shallow river, the Rio Tati, a branch of our old friend, the Rio Dulce. Here we found a long wooden bridge of considerable height, so as to be above the level of the frequent floods. This bridge is peculiar in its way. Its architect certainly has hit upon the most original idea in the way of bridges possible, insomuch as this ambitious and solid structure, after starting from the level of the lofty barranca, crosses the lower plain for several hundred yards, and then suddenly stops short, just where your common everyday bridge generally begins, at the bank of the river, at the water's edge. We rode along without observing this at first, and were loudly praising the high state of civilization of the country we had now reached, where the rivers were spanned by bridges, and we were congratulating ourselves on a passage dry-shod, when we were surprised to find the wooden roadway slope suddenly down to the water, leaving us to ford the stream saddle-deep. 
Once beyond the Fomentate, we ascended the steep street to the center of the town. Now we enjoyed a spell of luxury for a space and surrendered ourselves to a gentle life, for in this city, among others, is a hostelry eclept the Hotel de Paris, kept by one Monsieur Doucet, a Frenchman, and surely this is saying enough to indicate that it cannot but be an oasis of gastronomic comfort in this monotonous land of Puchero and Asado. This was a very Capua for us. Our host was erst of the Café de Paris at Rosario, an establishment frequented by the Anglo-Saxon, so he knew how deftly to mix the insinuating cocktail and the matutinal eggnog. Contact with the white man had also civilized the native waiters of this hotel. There was one, a fresh hand, but intelligent, who had found time already to study and commit to memory many of the principal habits of the white man. Note bene, by white man, of course, is signified Englishman to the exclusion of Negroes, Spaniards, and all foreigners, whatever. This is the common and proper definition of the term. I rung my bell for something or other the day after our arrival. This particular waiter promptly turned up, and before I had time to say a word, the varlet jerked out, Cognac con soda, senor? No, I replied with virtuous indignation, for I flatter myself that there is nothing in my personal appearance, no nasal flush or grogginess of eye that betokens habitual morning dryness. No, why do you ask me that? Ah, senor, he said with a childlike smile, there have been several English here, and whenever they rung the bell, they asked for a brandy and soda. Such are the pitfalls that the rash, inductive logician is apt to fall into, I meditated. This knave has formed this hasty generalization as to the habits of all my countrymen from the eccentric and vile practice of a few individuals and thus unjustly, uh, but stop, this aloud. On second thoughts, I think I will have a brandy and soda waiter, if Signor Giardine will join me. After all, the poor fellow had been doing his best to formulate into laws the mysterious Anglo-Saxon nature. It might confuse his intellect, cause him to despair, and renounce his laudable design, were we thus at these early stages of his study to place before him glaring exceptions to what he considered to be the most elementary and general rules of Anglo-Saxonology. We had now to dispose of our faithful horses, and entrusted Manuel to sell them for us. He took up his abode under a cart in the stable-yard, and there received the would-be purchasers of our steeds. There were some sharp fellows who tried hard to do our worthy follower, but he was on his mettle, and with his bland and simple smile, was quite up to these Tucumans, who fancied their own cuteness and imagined themselves much more knowing than a Cordovan. We stayed at Tucuman some days, and visited the neighboring country. We had evidently arrived at the wrong time of the year to enjoy the beauties of Tucuman, for it was now the rainy season. No make-believe one in this province. A perpetual pall of inky cloud obscured the skies. The rain fell continually. Beneath our feet, in street or orange grove, was stinking deep black mud, suggestive of fever and rheumatism. We found that expeditions into the country and the Cordilleras were just now provocative rather of bad temper and grumbling than of enthusiastic admiration of the glorious nature around us. 
when we were taken out to do anything, we would not admire it at all. Nothing was wonderful in our eyes. The plain of Tucuman was but an unweeded garden to us, and the Andes detestable nuisances. Such is the effect of weather on the traveling mind. One day our host took us out for a drive round the neighboring sugar factories in a tumble-down vermilion vehicle drawn by no less than six horses, with two outriders on the leaders, dirty, bare-legged half-breeds, each armed with a tremendous whip. The several portions of the carriage, the driver, the outriders, the horses, were all lashed together firmly with strips of rawhide, so as to obviate all chance of disintegration on the way. In this bone jolter we were carried along some terrible roads, for so civilized is this province that roads actually exist between the several plantations, but they are not of a high class. Our six horses could scarcely drag us through them. Tall sugar canes waved on either side of us, a ditch and then a cactus fence in all cases dividing them from the road, which was but a space left between two plantations, unmacadamized and untended in any way, its natural swampiness being increased by a remarkably intelligent custom. The mud that is dug out in the construction and constant dredging of the ditches is piled up on the sides of the road, forming two banks, sloping down towards its center. Thus the highway, instead of being slightly convex, as with us, and draining into the canals, was concave and very much so. Indeed, all that can be said in its favor is that, though a very inferior road, it would make a passable ditch. We were ever and anon getting into some more fearful slough than usual when our coach would refuse to advance and commence to sink gradually into the bowels of the earth, until the long whips and the tall language of our Jehu and outriders stung the horses into supernatural efforts and they tore us out. We visited several large factories, all provided with expensive machinery from England, and the processes of sugar and rum-making were explained to us. We tasted several samples of caña. One was a 44 caña, not an A.D. 44 or a 44 shilling a dozen, but a 44 above proof, firewater with a vengeance, calculated to make even a quillop cough. We brought a new pet for the falcon back with us in the carriage, no less than a young lion, a six-month-old puma that we purchased on the way from an Indian for five shillings, playful as a kitten, about the size of a Newfoundland dog, and with a purr as of a trombone. We enjoyed ourselves much in Tucuman, and actually learnt a new vice, one that is much indulged in throughout the northwest provinces of the Argentine Republic coca-leaf chewing. We have heard a good deal about this drug in England lately, and one of our professional walkers is said to have kept up his strength by its use during a recent sensational walk. The following is what I learnt concerning it in this, the land of its use and abuse. The Indians of Bolivia discovered the properties of coca. They either chew the leaf or drink an infusion of it, and their white conquerors have acquired the vice from them. That it does possess the wonderful sustaining powers attributed to it is certain. When an Indian undertakes a long journey on foot, he takes with him a little bag of these leaves and, as he goes, perpetually chews them and swallows their bitter juice. 
he will traverse many hundreds of miles of country thus without taking any other sustenance or requiring rest but when the gigantic effort is over he lies down on the ground utterly prostrated and so remains without moving for days until he has slept off the wearisome and terrible reaction of the drug from what i heard from intelligent men here possessing some medical knowledge it seems that taken in moderation it is a stomachic and has really useful sustaining powers would not be a bad substitute for tea or coffee and is probably better than these but those who exceed in the use of coca experience the most disastrous results the intemperate enjoyer of the drug becomes apathetic an utterly useless wretch impotent in mind and body his energy dies his digestive organs become seriously impaired the worst symptoms of dyspepia are induced and helpless idiocy not unfrequently occurs mr ledger of tucuman the discoverer of that most useful species of quinine tree that bears his name the chinchona legeriana told me that in his opinion the injurious result of excess in coca are more rapidly brought on and are more terrible in consequence than those attributed to excess in any other drug opium and indian hemp included i purchased a pound of coca leaf at the chemist's every chemist here sells the drug for four shillings and i started chewing vigorously to see what effect it produced i certainly took a large quantity of it but experienced no appreciable symptoms whatever Perhaps it only affects the simple living Indian and cannot touch the gringo. End of chapter 17